Hey, good morning. How's everybody? Good. Good to see you. Welcome to the Parkway Church. My name is uh, Zach, one of the pastors here. If you've got a Bible, we're going to be in Romans chapter 10, starting in verse 1. Romans chapter 10, starting in verse 1. Uh, I highly recommend, if you don't have a Bible, that you sell your kidney and get one and bring it, because we will often... Uh, uh, you'll often need it to work through the text. We put the text on the screen to help, but we'd love for you to have uh, your own copy of the Scriptures as well. Uh, as we're going to look at in this, uh, this section here in Romans, we're going to see some people striving really hard in the wrong direction. So I want to use this as a little uh, illustration. So when I was a kid, uh, we were really excited on the weekends because sometimes we would go to Blockbuster Video. Raise your hand if you've been to a Blockbuster in the last two weeks. Uh-huh. That's what I thought. So as a kid, you would go in, and it was this magical world, right? There were posters on the wall, and uh, there was candy. Sometimes there was popcorn. And so your new movie that you really want to see had just come out, so you run up to the wall, you find it, and it's checked out. You just couldn't get it. You had to wait. So you would go to the front desk, and you would say, when is this movie getting back? And they're like, three days. And you're like, three days? I don't care about that for three days. I can stream it today. I love that. But as a kid, you had to wait three days. And then finally, your movie would come in. And you would take that video cassette, this huge block of information, and you would take it home and you would pop some popcorn and you'd pop it in your VCR and you still couldn't watch it because the fool in front of you wasn't kind, he didn't rewind, and so now you had to wait 20 minutes while it rewound while you're eating your popcorn and it's getting cold and then you could finally watch the movie. But after that you weren't done, then you had to rewind it, you had to bring it back to Blockbuster, it often didn't fit in the little return slot, so you're kicking it in the slot and that was Blockbuster, okay? Now, whether you know it or not, I just want to let you in on this, that Blockbuster has fallen on hard times, okay? There's actually a guy online, and what he does is he will go on social media, and he will tweet things out, or Instagram, on Instagram, he'll send things out, and he does it as if he is the manager of the last surviving Blockbuster, okay? I'll give you a few of his tweets. <clears throat> a lot of people don't know this, but we own a large portion of Netflix. Just kidding, our electricity just got shut off. He'll send out things like that. Asking us why we don't have Blu-rays is like asking a homeless person why he doesn't have a MacBook Pro, okay? These are the kind of things he sets out. Just to, to emphasize, Blockbuster's imminent decline, okay? Every time you return a tape without rewinding it, a bald eagle flies into a plane engine. <laughs> and then my all-time favorite, which is, please stop sending us photos of abandoned Blockbusters. That's like us sending you photos of your dead grandparents, okay? <laughs> now, imagine for a second that you are pretty smart. You, you, come, you come into a large sum of money, maybe a relative passes away, you get some money, and you're smart. You've gone to school, you've gone to, to Harvard Business School. You're savvy, and you say, you know what I'm gonna do with this money? I'm gonna invest it all into Blockbuster Video. I'm gonna buy a ton of stock in Blockbuster. I'm gonna buy all these VHSs and just stack them around my house. I think that would be a great idea. The problem with that is not that you're not smart. The problem with that is not that you don't have a good education. The problem is you are really zealous in the wrong direction. You're putting forward a lot of effort in going into a dead system, a system that was great in its day. Blockbuster Video was amazing in its day, but now that we have Netflix, you can stream a movie instantly and you don't have to wait and you don't have to return it. You want some candy? You can have a 50-pack of gummy bears sent to your house with Amazon Prime in two days, okay? Something better than Blockbuster has come along. Well, what the Apostle Paul's going to do is he's going to say that there is a sense, and with the, the Judaism that he's correcting, that they are very zealous, that they are very passionate, but they're running in the wrong direction. They're going back to an older system. They're taking all their money and they're investing it 
into something that is not what is best. And so we're going to see that here in uh, Romans 10. Let me open us in a word of prayer, and then we will get into verse 1. Almighty God, we thank you for your grace and just ask that you would guide us, that you would protect us, that you would uh, forgive us for our failings, for thinking of you incorrectly. Uh, I thank you for this time to study your word. And so I just ask for help. Uh, We love you and thank you. It's in Christ's name. Amen. Let's look together at verse 1. Paul says this, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Let me summarize where we are here in Romans. Romans chapters 9 through 11 is simply trying to answer this question. Ready? God promised salvation to the Jews, but most Jews have rejected Jesus and therefore don't have salvation. Has God been unfaithful to his promise? That's what the Apostle Paul keeps hitting all in chapters 9 through 11, okay? So here the Apostle Paul is going to continue talking about this plight of those that seem to be zealous for God, these Jewish people, yet they've rejected the very means of salvation that God has provided, namely his Messiah. Now, when the Apostle Paul critiques the Jews, you need to keep in mind, this is not racism. Paul is not an anti-Semite. Paul is Jewish. He worships a Jewish Messiah. He's critiquing them for their theological position. He's not critiquing them for their ethnicity or something like that. And in fact, what the Apostle Paul keeps having to do is he keeps having to say, listen, I'm critiquing Jews that reject Jesus, but you need to know I still love them. There is a tendency in our culture to assume that if somebody disagrees with you, they therefore hate you. And the Apostle Paul is fighting against that, and he's saying, no, 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 I do have to offer this critique. But in chapter 9, he says he'd be willing to go to hell for them, and he keeps saying throughout chapters 9 through 11, I love them, I love them, I love them. And here he says, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. First of all, this term brothers here in this context, sometimes Paul uses that to refer to Jews. In this context, he's referring to Christians, though, specifically Gentile Christians, because he's going to contrast them with the Jews. And he says, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Now, listen to this. Paul takes no delight in the fact that his enemies, these people that have persecuted him, the Jews on multiple occasions tried to kill Paul. Paul takes no delight in their downfall. He wants salvation for them. He wants what's good for them, okay? Now, there's a lesson for us in that. If someone cuts me off in traffic, my first thought is not, I would go to hell for that person. I'm going to stop right now, and I'm going to pray that they get a promotion, that something good happens. If someone cuts me off in traffic, I'm seeing if they have a sunroof so I can lob a grenade or a burrito, whatever I'm eating, just in their car. That's wrong. We're to pray for our enemies, love those who persecute us. But the Apostle Paul here says, though they've tried to persecute me, my my heart's uh, desire for them is for their salvation. Now, look at this next part here. Brothers, my heart's desire, look at the second half of the verse, and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. The Apostle Paul just spent all of chapter 9 talking about predestination. He just talked about election. Pop quiz for you. Does the Bible see there being any incompatibility between praying for someone's salvation and the fact that God has elected people? It does not. The Apostle Paul can spend all of chapter 9 talking about election and then turn around and in the same breath say, oh, and by the way, I pray for them in what way? Specifically, that they may be saved. So one of the questions that has come up multiple times in our theological equipping class is this. If God has already determined who he's going to save, and who he's not going to save, why do we pray for people, and why do we evangelize, okay? And the answer that we've given over and over again is this. God doesn't just ordain the ends. He ordains the means by which he will accomplish those ends. In fact, all rational beings do that. So if I have the goal of going to work, that's my end, the means by which I will do that is I will get in my car and go to work. If I'm going to, if I want dinner, I'm going to get some buffalo wings, which is what's going to happen tonight. 
That's the goal. That's always the goal for me. That's the end. But the means that I ordain, if you will, is to get in my car and go and, you know, wait 20 minutes or whatever for the wings. You don't just have things that are just popping into being. What you have is you have this progression. And so in the same way, God could have just teleported the gospel into the minds of the elect, but instead, he ordains to use these means, whether it's reading the scriptures or somebody sharing the gospel with you or somebody praying for you, okay? So I would turn the question around and say, if God is not sovereign, then why would you pray for someone's salvation? Why would you evangelize? If somebody is born spiritually dead, you might as well spend your time walking around a cemetery talking to the tombstones. But instead, if God is actually sovereign, even over the wills of men, then all of a sudden here Paul's statement makes sense. Though I believe in election, though I've just spent all of chapter 9 talking about it, I still pray for their salvation. Why? Because there's not an incompatibility there. There's not an, God ordains the end as well as the means. Verse 2. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Okay, let me explain what's going on here, and then I'm going to get on a soapbox and yell and stuff, okay? Let me explain what's going on here. Paul is saying, though the Jews would say they love God, they have not accepted salvation the way he says they must accept it, which is through faith in Christ. Specifically, the Apostle Paul here is critiquing the Jews for saying, you seem like you really love God, but you're ignorant of the way that God says you must come to him, which is with empty hands, just trusting in Christ. Okay? But there is another and I think bigger implication of this text. Let me read it again. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Listen, God does not care about how much you say you love him if you are believing wrong things about him. Your theology and your worship go together. Okay? If you say, well, I really love Jesus. Zach, why can't we just love Jesus? Why do we have to do theology? Why can't we just love Jesus? Which Jesus? The Mormon Jesus who was created and is the brother of the devil and comes from some human on another planet? Is that the Jesus you follow? What about the Jesus of Jehovah's Witnesses who's a created super angel? Is that the Jesus you just want to love? What about uh, the prophet Isa, Jesus in Islam, who didn't even die on a cross and is not the son of God? Is that the Jesus you want to follow? So you see, as soon as you say, why can't we just love Jesus? You're instantly doing theology again. And you have to describe which Jesus you love. God is not pleased with emotion and squishiness and passion pointed at the wrong object. I saw a, uh, an ad recently for a mosque. I don't know how many of those you've seen, but I've seen one. And uh, on this poster, there was a Muslim woman, and she had tears streaming down her eyes. She had on her uh, hijab. She had tears streaming down her eyes. She had her hands raised, and it was an ad for this mosque. Now, let me ask you, is that true worship? To be really passionate and have your hands raised and tears streaming down your face for the wrong God? No. God is not pleased with ignorant worship. You must worship God in spirit and in truth. This is a huge thing that is going on right now. I don't know if you know this or not. In evangelicalism, there is almost this exaltation of anti-intellectualism. That loving God means you just need to have passion and emotion and squishiness, but stay away from all that sterile, all that discernment, all that theology stuff. Listen, it's not a spectrum. If your head is over here, your knowledge of God, and your heart is over here, your love for God, it's not as though as you move towards one, you move away from the other. If that were the case, the way that you would love God the most is by shutting off your mind and being ignorant. Or conversely, if you wanted to love God more, what you'd have to do is you would have to... I'm sorry, you shut off your mind. Or if you wanted to know more about God, you'd have to love him less. It's not a spectrum. It's two separate columns. Think of it this way. If this is head and this is heart, okay? 
and you have a lot of head knowledge, you know a lot about God, you know a lot of theology, you need to raise your heart column if that's low. You don't need to lower the head. Conversely, if you have a lot of passion and a lot of love for God, but you don't know much about Him, you don't know much theology, you don't need to love Him less. You don't need to quench your passion. Instead, you need to raise your head. These are two separate columns. You should always be striving for orthodoxy on fire. You should always be striving to love God more, restore to me the joy of your salvation, but at the same time be pursuing theology. You cannot separate these two. I've actually had a guy in ministry tell me that I would probably love God more if I didn't read so much. How stupid. That's like saying, you're going to grow in your relationship with your wife, but don't let her talk. You just do all the talking. Don't, don't see what she has to say. Don't see what God has to say in his scriptures or in theology. You just do the talking. It's absolutely ridiculous. You cannot separate head from heart. The Jews are very, very, very passionate. They pray a certain number of times a day. They stay, abstain from certain foods. They do all of this. And yet the Apostle Paul here is going to say, it's not according to knowledge, therefore it's not real zeal. Let me give you some passages about this in the Bible. Titus 2.1. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Notice, that's a command for us, okay? Doctrine. The Bible cares about theology. Mark 7.7. 7. Jesus says, in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Notice, Jesus is saying is if you have false doctrine, that is vain worship. He doesn't accept it, okay? It's just teachings of men. 2 Corinthians 10.5, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Christianity is a thinking religion. Christianity is not primarily an experiential religion. It's a doctrinal religion. It's not like Hinduism. It's not like Buddhism. It's not mysticism. We do not circumvent the mind. Our theology goes together with our love for God. In fact, the Christian walk is taking everything you think about and submitting it to the cross of Christ. Romans 16.1, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions. Now, you might think those that cause divisions are those that really care about theology, but here's what he goes on to say. And create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. So what he's actually saying is you should hold to correct doctrine, and those who cause divisions are the ones bringing in new teachings, the ones bringing in things the church has never held. Avoid those people. Ephesians 4.14, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. Hosea 4.6, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. What kind of knowledge in context? It's theological knowledge. They don't know the right things about God and therefore they are destroyed. 1 Timothy 4.6, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Titus 1.9, speaking of the role of an elder, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. And then look at John 14.15. Jesus says this, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So if you say you love Jesus, you also have to believe what Jesus does about the roles of women, about homosexuality, about uh, when you can and can't get divorced, etc., you can't just say, I love God. I have a bunch of squishy passion. That's just a flash in the pan. Your theology must go with your passion always. Anti-intellectualism is not humble. Anti-intellectualism says, I don't know, and that's okay. That's pride. Humility says, I don't know, but I'm going to study and I'm going to find out. You do not get to love God with just part of you. You have to love him with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. The great uh, Princeton Seminary theologian, a guy named B.B. Warfield, one time had a student come up to him and said, uh, and, and I'll, I'll read this quote here too in a second. A student came up to him though and he said, 
Dr. Warfield, wouldn't it be better for you to spend 10 minutes in prayer on your knees opposed to 10 hours over your books? Now think what that student is saying. Wouldn't it be better for you to do something spiritual like prayer and not do all this heady, you know, ivory tower knowledge stuff over here? And here's what B.B. Warfield said to the student. Sometimes we hear it said that 10 minutes on your knees will give you a truer, deeper, more operative knowledge of God than 10 hours over your books. What is the appropriate response? Then 10 hours over your books on your knees? Why should you turn from God when you turn to your books or feel that you must, uh, I'm sorry, that you must turn from your books in order to turn to God? So not only do we see this in Scripture, this idea that head and heart go together, that your worship and your theology have to go together, that your theology is the ceiling to your doxology, we also see this in church history. Let me give you a few facts here. St. Jerome translated the entire Bible from Hebrew and Greek into Latin by himself. St. Augustine, maybe you've heard of St. Augustine. He was a rhetoric professor in Milan before his conversion and had a broad education in the humanities. He combined Neoplatonism with the Bible and wrote over five million words. I don't know if you know how much that is. That's the equivalent length of 90 PhD dissertations. That's how long five million words is, okay? He solved the problem of evil, defended the doctrine of grace, proved the existence of absolute truth, and defended the Trinity. In fact, he studied the Trinity for more than 22 years before finishing his book on it, De Trinitate. The greatest thinker in the Middle Ages was a guy named Thomas Aquinas. He studied at the best university for theology at that time, the University of Paris, under the best instructor, a guy named Albert the Great, okay, Albertus Magnus. His Summa Theologia is still one of the most influential theological textbooks of all time. He was so smart that he could dictate three or four books at a time. Here's what this means. In the ancient world, you wouldn't write everything by hand. You would dictate to scribes, and they would write it down. So you ever seen like a chess master who's like playing one game of chess, and then they jump to the other one, and they play that one, and they just go around the room beating people? That's what Aquinas would do with writing books. He would have four scholars sitting in a row, and he'd be dictating a book to one, stop mid-sentence, turn, dictate another book to another, okay? And these are not like children's books. These are like commentaries on Aristotle. He wrote over 8 million words, or the equivalent of 144 doctoral dissertations in length. Martin Luther, the spearhead of the Reformation, had a doctorate in theology. He was a professor of theology at the University of Wittenberg, and he translated the entire New Testament from Greek into German in just 10 weeks by himself while locked up in a castle undergoing spiritual attack. He thought that the biblical languages were so important that he said he'd be willing to go to school with the devil to learn them if he had to, and he encouraged people to study until they had, quote, taught the devil to death and become more learned than God himself and all his saints. John Calvin studied at both the universities of Paris and Orléans and wrote one of the most popular Protestant systematic theology textbooks ever, Institutes of the Christian Religion. His first published book was a commentary on Cicero that he wrote in Latin at the age of just 23. What were you doing when you were 23? I was waking up at 11 and eating cereal and watching cartoons. I was not writing commentaries in Latin on Cicero. Ulrich Zwingli, the great Swiss reformer, the third man of the Reformation, in addition to having a strong formal education, had all of Paul's letters memorized in Greek. George Whitfield and John Wesley both studied theology at Oxford. Jonathan Edwards went to Yale at 14, graduated at 17, had his master's at 19, and went on to become the president of Princeton. His dissertation was delivered, of course, in Latin. He sometimes studied 14 hours a day and is considered to be the greatest mind ever to come out of North America. Charles Spurgeon, the great prince of preachers, had a library of over 20,000 volumes. He tutored Greek at Cambridge, and he was reading the Puritans by the age of 12. I don't know if you've ever tried to read John Owen, but he's very difficult. But my boy Spurgeon here was crushing that before his teens, okay? 
And that's not just true in church history, that's true of church leaders today. John Piper has a PhD from the University of Munich. Wayne Grudem, who wrote the popular systematic theology textbook, has a bachelor's degree from Harvard, a master's degree from Westminster, which broke off of Princeton Seminary, and a PhD from Cambridge. N.T. Wright, the most popular New Testament scholar in the world today, has five degrees from Oxford, which is the best school in the world, by the way, including two doctorates. He has his own translation of the New Testament. That's how you know you've arrived, okay? One of my personal heroes, I actually got to meet a month ago, Alistair McGrath, who's a historical theologian, has seven degrees from Oxford, including three doctorates. D.A. Carson, in addition to having a PhD from Cambridge, reads 500 books a year. Think about that. There are only 365 days in a year. He reads more than a book a day. I heard him in an interview one time say, incidentally, I end up reading two or three books on mathematics a year. Huh. Like, you just, can you imagine just like accidentally reading a mathematics textbook? That's kind of what he does. Now listen, listen to what I'm saying and I'm not saying. I am not putting these men before you to say that if God, you want God to use you, you have to be really smart. I will never obtain anywhere close to the education of these guys. Jeff will never obtain that. None of our elders will obtain that. None of you will ever obtain that. In fact, I would say the Bible says the opposite, that God uses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. Amen? What I'm wanting you to see from this, though, is this, that it seems like if we look at the Bible and we look at church history, God uses people who don't separate head and heart. He uses people who love theology. The reason these are great men is not because they're smart. It's because they're Bible guys. They love Bible. They love theology. They love thinking about God. You cannot separate head and heart. Paul rebukes those who have a zeal for God but not according to knowledge. Look at verse 3. Four, being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Notice the word ignorant here. He's continuing this idea that they seem to have a passion, but it's not facing the right direction. They've got a lot of effort, but it's in Blockbuster and not Netflix. Now, in verse 3 is actually going to be the center of this text. So out of 1, 2, 3, and 4, verse 3 is the most important verse. It's the center of Paul's argument here. Let me explain what's going on. So I am a dad. I have two kids. I have a son named Judah who's three, and he is very sensitive. He's very emotionally savvy. He'll come up if you have a sad face, and he'll say, Daddy, why do you have a sad face? And he's three. He's very in tune with that. My daughter, she's one. Her name is Isla. She is so sweet. She's always giving away smiles, but she has a feisty side. She's like this little baby honey badger or something. She's cute, but she'll rip your face off if she needs to, this little pink wolverine. And so... Having kids, uh, I've learned several things in having kids that I didn't know before. One, changing diapers is way worse than I thought it was going to be. I knew it was going to be bad, but in real life, it never goes as planned. They don't just have a diaper in a way that's convenient. They have a diaper in a way that is like a hurricane, okay? I also didn't know how slippery a baby in the bathtub would be. I don't know if you know this or not, but a baby's skin is like a porpoise, okay? And so when you're trying to get a baby out of the bathtub, it is like trying to wrestle an oiled-up dolphin, and you can't, okay? And one of the things that I'm learning now from my son is there are times he will disobey me by doing something else that looks like obedience. Let me explain what I mean. If he makes a mess with his toys, and I say, Judah, come over here and clean up the blocks, sometimes he'll say, uh, I'm going to clean up these toys. Now think about what he's doing. He's not just going to come out and say, I'm disobeying you, I'm being unrighteous. He's going to say, I want to take something that seems like righteousness, something that you've told me to do before, and I want to do that as a way of rebelling against you for the thing that you're asking me to do now. Amen? Parents? Anybody? So he's doing something that looks like he's obeying me in a way so he can actually disobey me. Now look at me. That is exactly 
what Paul is saying the Jews are doing. God is saying, find righteousness in Christ. You don't find it in the Mosaic law. You don't find it in doing. You find it in Christ, and you find it in believing. And instead, what they're saying is, but this is something that used to be seen as righteous. This is another way that I can actually rebel and not submit to Christ, but still look like I'm doing something that's righteous. That's what's going on in this text. And the apostle Paul is going to excoriate them for that, okay? Verse 3 again. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Okay, now let me explain something. If you were to ask a Jew, what does righteousness mean? We all agree we should be righteous. What does righteousness mean? What does it mean to have zeal? If you were to ask a Jew that in the first century, what they would say is this. They would point you to a story of a guy named Phineas. You ever heard of this story? They would say that the one place that the Bible most clearly speaks to zeal is in the story of this guy named Phineas who so loves God's law that he is willing to kill for it. I'm going to read you a passage. It's an offensive passage. Don't get mad at me. It's in the Bible. But I very much doubt that you have this passage crocheted on a pillow somewhere in your house, okay? What's going on is Israel is told not to marry foreign women. And the reason being is because they'll lead them astray. They'll lead them away from worshiping God and into worshiping idols. So what's been going on is they've been marrying these foreign women, and now Baal worship has got mixed up in Israel. And so God curses Israel. And so here's the story that happens here. This is in uh, Numbers 25, 6 through 9. And behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite, meaning a pagan, a non-God worshiper, a Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses, in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel, while they were weeping in the entrance to the tent of meeting. When Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he rose and left the congregation and took a spear in his hand and went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them, the man of Israel and the woman, through her belly. Thus the plague on the people of Israel was stopped. Nevertheless, those who had died by the plague were 24,000. If you are a Jew, zeal and righteousness means that you are so passionate about obeying God's word that you're willing to make a people kebab, okay? That's what's going on. Phineas is so infuriated that this man is just blatantly flaunting and, and sinning against God's commands that he comes in there and he stabs him and he is hailed as a hero in Israel who turns aside God's wrath. That's what zeal and that's what righteousness means if you're a Jew. It means you love the Mosaic law. That's it. Righteousness to a Jew is equated with Mosaic law keeping. Here's the problem that the Apostle Paul is going to bring up, though. Galatians 3, 10 through 14, when it's talking about the law. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Here's what Paul is saying. If you're a Jew, you think that righteousness comes from the Mosaic law and from doing. But he says that's not good enough. God doesn't just demand that you generally follow the law. He demands that it be perfect. So instead, righteousness doesn't come from the Mosaic law and from doing. It comes from Christ and is received from believing. Those are the two contrasts Paul is making. You've got law over here, Jesus over here. You've got doing over here, faith over here. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying here. This is one of the things that makes Christianity different than every other religion. 
One of the things that makes Christianity different is the fact that our God is a trinity. Other religions don't have that. But another thing that makes our religion different is how salvation is obtained. Righteousness is not obtained through doing and striving. It's not like Islam where you have to have more good deeds than bad. It's not like Hinduism where you try to live a righteous and pious life and hopefully can be reincarnated back into something better. It's not like Buddhism where you want to get rid of want. You desire to get rid of desire, which is a contradiction, so that you can reach nirvana, not the band, the state of enlightenment, okay? In Christianity, though, there is no you striving. There is no you doing. Salvation is a gift. In fact, you have to submit to it. You just receive a gift. You have empty hands of faith. It's one of the things that makes Christianity Christianity and not something else. Now look again at verse 3. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Look specifically at that last phrase. They did not submit to God's righteousness. Listen to what I'm about to say. For salvation, you don't just repent of your bad deeds. You repent for trusting in your good ones. You don't just repent of your bad deeds. You repent of your good deeds. You don't come before Christ just as a sinner. You come before Christ as a sinner who turns away from sin and from relying on your own righteousness. You have to put all your weight in Christ and Christ alone. Righteousness is given to you as a gift. You do not earn it. You do not strive for it. I'll give you an example. Have you ever, everybody in here ever been on a boat? I don't mean like a ship, but like a, like a little boat for skiing or anything. Raise your hand if you've been on a boat. Okay, most people. Okay, so there's, a, there's this awkward time when the boat is being pushed off from the dock and you're helping push the boat off where you have to like put one foot on the boat and one foot's on the dock and you're trying not to get split in half. Do you know what I'm talking about? Christ is like that boat, okay? Your righteousness and your good deeds are like that dock. You can't just stay where you are. If so, the boat will drift away, you'll do the splits and fall in the water. You have to pick. You have to put all your weight on you and your righteousness, or you have to put all your weight on the boat who is Christ. So my encouragement to you is, is there a place in your life where you're still straddling? You've got one foot on Christ, but one foot kind of in your own righteousness. He does most of it. Yeah, he died for my sins, but some of it comes from me. My encouragement would be, be all one or the other. Put all your hope in your own righteousness and be condemned. Or, and this is the better option, put all your weight on Christ. As that boat is drifting away from the dock, jump off the dock and jump onto the boat. Righteousness is a gift. You put your weight on Christ. You don't get to split the two. Salvation is not 90% up to God and 10% up to you. It's 100% up to God. Verse 4. Why, Paul? He gives the reasoning here. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. What he's trying to answer is this question. Where do you find righteousness? The Mosaic law or Christ, okay? Now, here's my question. What does it mean here where it says, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness, okay? Here's the best illustration I can give you. When you're running a race, is the finish line the end of the race and the race is over, or is it the goal of the race towards which you're striving? It's actually both, right? When you're running a race, the end of the race happens when you cross the finish line, then the race is over. Also, it's the goal toward which you're striving, Christ is both. He's the fulfillment of the law, and he marks a new era. He brings in new wine that doesn't fit into old wineskins. Let me give you a few passages here. Matthew 5, 17 through 18. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law ever, no, until all is accomplished. Jesus is not saying... One, that the law doesn't matter, nor is he saying you must always be under Mosaic law and not eat pork. 
what he's being accused of is getting rid of the law. People are coming to him and saying, Jesus, you're saying we shouldn't care about the law. And he's saying, I don't think you understand the purpose of the law. One, the law is to point to me and I'm here to fulfill it. And two, I'm not getting rid of it. I'm fulfilling it. And you won't be under it when all is accomplished. And what does he say on the cross? It is finished. It is accomplished. Galatians 3, 24 through 25. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. I don't like that word. Uh, I don't like the translation of that word as guardian. It's the Greek word pedagogos. And here, here's the idea of this image. In the ancient Greek world, about 25% of the population were slaves. But don't think American slavery. Uh, the kind of slave you might be is one who's a tutor, might be like a babysitter. You might be a, a slave who does your master's taxes, whatever it might be. If you were a well-born family, what you would do is you would have a slave and that slave would be the designated tutor and teacher of your child, okay? That's where this phrase pedagogos is what it is in Greek for guardian comes from. So guardian makes it sound like they're there protecting you with two swords, and yes, they would protect you if someone attacked you, but primarily they're a babysitter, okay? They're a teacher. That's what the law is meant to do. Now, let me ask you this question. Is there anything wrong with having a babysitter when you're a little kid? No. We had a babysitter when I was a kid. Her name was Courtney, and she was awesome. She would let us play volleyball in the house against the walls. Haha, parents, but you didn't know about that. But if you have a babysitter now, if I have a babysitter now, something's gone terribly wrong, right? Like if you bring your kid to Chuck E. Cheese and like I rush in the door and like push him out of the way and start dancing with that weird rat mascot, you call the cops, rightfully so. Babysitters are good for a time, but there's a time when you become an adult where something has changed. That's how the Apostle Paul sees the law. The law was good. It was a babysitter. It was a guardian. But now that Christ has come, something better has come along. Blockbuster was great, but now Netflix is better. It's more convenient. But I liked Blockbuster, yes, and the Jews liked the Mosaic Law. But something better has come along. Now, let me say this. Just because I'm an adult, do I then get to forget all of the wisdom and everything that the babysitter gave me? I don't. It's not as though I now jump out into the street because it was the babysitter who taught me not to jump into the street, and I'm no longer under a babysitter. There is still a wisdom there, okay? There is still a wisdom there. So how should Christians today relate to the Old Testament? Let me give you two big errors. One is thinking that you're still bound by Old Testament Mosaic law, thinking that you have to keep a Sabbath and not get a tattoo and not eat pork and only wear a certain kind of clothes. That would be one error. The other error you can fall into is thinking that the Old Testament's irrelevant. You just take scissors to three-fourths of your Bible and just say, ah, that's old stuff. Neither of those are correct. The old, the old covenant is not the same as the Old Testament. You're not under the Old Covenant, but you are under the Old Testament. The Old Testament tells you who God is. It tells you who the Messiah will be. It shows you God's heart. It's actually extremely relevant for today. Let me give you some things that are in the Old Testament. The Mosaic Law deals with what does and does not count as sexual assault. Did you know that? Would that be a relevant thing to know in culture today? that actually the Bible tells us what counts as consensual sex versus sexual assault. The Bible deals with that. We just didn't know that because we don't know our Old Testaments very well. The Mosaic Law deals with how to assess false allegations of assault. The Bible tells us how to deal with that in the Old Testament. The Mosaic Law deals with what a just society should look like. What should society be like? What should be the role of government or whatever it is? The Old Testament deals with how we should think of the poor. The difference between someone who is poor due to no fault of their own versus someone who is poor due to their own unrighteous decisions. By the way, just as a little aside, this is for free. The reason you will never get rid of poverty in America is because we don't separate righteous poor from unrighteous poor. 
We just lump everybody into one category and act like we can just deal with poverty that way. In the Bible, those are different. Unrighteous poor is due to your own bad decisions. Righteous poor is due to no fault of your own. The law talks about how not to show partiality to anyone for any reason in court. The law lays out clear lines of how we should think of marriage and sexual ethics. The law lays out how we should think of issues such as capital punishment. The law lays out what we should think about raising our kids. By the way, just as an aside, the Bible gives you one way to discipline your kids. I'm not saying you can't use another way, but let's not disregard the one way it does say like 10 times. The law lays out what loving your neighbor actually looks like, etc. So here what Paul is saying is this. He's saying the law is good. It's still scripture. You still know who God is by it. The law is good. But now that Christ has come for righteousness, you are not under the law. Your righteousness comes to you only from Christ. You don't get to have one foot again on that dock and one foot on the boat. You have to put both feet on the boat. Now, here's how I want to end. As we're going through Romans, you get the same lesson over and over and over again. You're saved by grace. You're saved by grace. You're saved by grace. You're saved by grace. You're saved by Christ. You can't do it. Stop trying to earn it. Don't go to Mosaic Law. Don't go to your own law. Stop it. Rest. Receive grace. My fear for you, though, is because you hear that so much that you just become numb to it. That you just think, oh, yeah, I know. We're saved by Christ. We're saved by grace. And you just act as though because you already know it, you believe it in your heart. Listen, statistically speaking, if we're just talking math, there are some people in here who think they are Christians and they are not. They were like me, who for 18 years sat in church and heard the gospel and wasn't a Christian until God opened my heart. So you need to wrestle with, do I know Christ? Am I trusting him? Or do I keep one foot on the dock? For others of you, you are Christians, but where is it in your life where you're trusting Christ mainly, but a little bit of you? Where is it in your life that you have most of your weight on that boat? It's almost all there, but you still have a toe on that dock. Where is that area in your life? Would you repent of that? My fear is anytime somebody just knows a doctrine, they assume that they actually believe it and it's in their heart. Let me ask you to examine yourself. One, do you know Christ? And two, if you do know Christ, where in your life are you not trusting Him? Where in your life are you not trusting Him with your kids, with your job, with your spouse, with your fear or anxiety, with your anger, with your depression, with your lust, with your money, whatever it is? Any place where you're not trusting Christ is idolatry. Part of what verses 1 through 4 are trying to say is Christ is where you find righteousness. He's true knowledge. He's true theology. He's where you get the good stuff. It's not in having the zeal apart from him. It's not in following the law, which you can't keep. It's in Christ. Where are you trusting even a little bit in something other than Christ? Would you repent of that thing as we pray, as the volunteers come forward to pass out the elements for communion? Almighty God, I just confess that uh, in my own heart, there are so many places where I don't trust Christ. There are so many places where I I still wrestle. I I know that I'm a believer. I know that I've been saved. But at the same time, there's so many places where I I run to my own righteousness. I think that you'll be more pleased with me if I'm doing more of the law or something like this. And so would you forgive me? Would you help us? We thank you for texts like this that are encouragement. I pray for anyone in here who has an exalted heart but not an exalted head that they would grow their knowledge of you, grow in their knowledge of you. I pray for others in here who might be like the Pharisees, who might have uh, an exalted knowledge but not a love for you. I pray that you would give them just a deep sense of joy in what you've done for them. We love you. We thank you. We ask it all in Christ's name. Amen.